Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Daisuke Miao about his new book, The Aesthetics of Shadow, Lighting and Japanese Cinema. This came out in 2013 with Duke University Press. This is a really fascinating study of a number of different elements. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Daisuke Miao about his new book, The Aesthetics of Shadow, Lighting and Japanese Cinema. This came out in 2013 with Duke University Press. This is a really fascinating study of a number of different elements of what collectively come together to give us a history of not just film, not just film in Japan, not just actors and actresses, although this is all part of the story, but also a history of light, a history of shadow, a history of the nation, a history that's transnational, that crosses all kinds of boundaries, and that incorporates a really, really richly textured story about the early 20th century into a path that takes us through the stories of some really fabulous and fantastic films, actors, cinematographers, and directors along the way. So the story focuses on the early 20th century, and it takes us through a history that posits cinema as, um, as Daisuke um, calls it at the beginning of the book, a medium of light and shadow. There's a lot in here if you are a specialist in Japan or if you just really like reading about Japanese history, Japanese culture, Japanese studies. There's also a lot in here if you are a historian of technology, if you're a historian of film, or if you just really love learning more about film, about culture, and about the production of cinema in particular. So it's an extraordinarily rich study. It was really great to talk with Daisuke about it. Um, I was really grateful that he was um, able to also talk on a Friday afternoon. Um, So I'm grateful for that. And it was also a lot of fun. So I hope that you enjoy the conversation. I hope you have a chance um, to get your hands on a copy of the book as well and read it because there's a whole lot in here that we didn't even scratch the surface of. It's a very, very rich study and it really rewards a close reading. Thanks so much. We're here today to talk with Daisuke Miao about his new book, The Aesthetics of Shadow, Lighting and Japanese Cinema. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Daisuke, and thanks very, very much for making time not only to talk with me about your awesome book, but also to talk with me on a Friday afternoon. I really especially appreciate it, so thank you. Thank you very much. I am very excited about uh, talking about my book, Good, me too. Well, it's a great book, and I learned so much from it, um, and we'll, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, over the next hour. So I'm excited to talk with you as well. Thank you. Okay. So Daisuke, um, could you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by saying just a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, how did you come to the field of the history of modern Japanese cinema? Sure, uh, with pleasure. Um, 
So I, uh, I was born in Japan, Tokyo, and I grew up in Tokyo, and uh, I went to a graduate, graduate school in New York, um, and I was interested, I became interested in uh, silent cinema uh, during my coursework, and um, particularly um, Hollywood films, Japanese films, and European films, French and German in particular. And then um, I did some postdocs after I completed my dissertation on the Japanese star Sesu Hayakawa. Um, I found a job in Oregon, and I'm teaching at the University of Oregon now. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> Sorry, go on. Yes. Uh, what is your question? Oh, I thought I, w- I just didn't want to interrupt you. I was going to say um, three cheers for the Pacific Northwest. Oh, okay. Oregon, Vancouver conversation. <laughs> Track down the USA. <laughs> so you, exactly. So you started out um, by working in um, graduate school and then in a dissertation and a book on uh, Japanese film stars. So the book we're talking about today is related, but actually takes on quite a different uh, sort of focus. And it's a really exciting focus, and I'll describe that in a moment. So the book explores what you call the aesthetics of shadow in Japanese cinema, and it focuses in particular on lighting technologies and techniques, situating your study of Japanese cinema within a broader context of transnational film history. So, And in fact, one of the really interesting things that comes out of the study, at least for me as one reader, is a way of rethinking about Japanese cinema outside of the dyad of Japanese or not Japanese, Japanese or Western, and instead looking at what we might otherwise think of as Japanese cinema as fundamentally and deeply transnational cinema. So there's a lot going on in the book. It's really fabulous, and we'll talk about this in a little bit. How did you come, um, if you could say a little Mm -hmm. bit for us uh, about this, how did you come to work on this particular topic for the book, and can you situate this a little bit within your larger research trajectory? Sure. Um, So probably um, because of my uh, bicultural background, so... um, a graduate student coming out from Japan and spent the last nearly 20 years in the States. Um, I am interested in people and phenomena that cross borders, uh, different borders, uh, including national borders, um, race, racial and ethnic borders, um, generational borders, and so on and so forth. Um, So, Sesu Hayakawa, uh, the topic of my first book, um, he was, um, you know, a very transnational kind of person. Um, He was a Japanese um, kind of a student who came to uh, Japan, came to the United States, um, and he studied at the University of Chicago, but uh, he ended up um, becoming a Hollywood star in the 19-teens. So, um, I became interested in um, his way of uh, grasping the uh, the culture of the United States and the uh, uh, emergence of the film culture in Hollywood. And then um, his star image, um, it was received in, a different, in different manners in the United States, in Japan, and in France, and in Europe. So uh, that was the um, first... Uh, 
person um, that I became interested in as a, a transnational border crossing type of person, type of guy, um, and and the phenomenon. And uh, for this book, um, there are some cinematographers um, that I first uh, became interested in. Um, one of them was. Um, well, uh, his name is Henry Kotani. Uh, he was a cinematographer. Uh, he started um, he, he started his career in Hollywood in the 19 teens. Uh, he worked. He actually worked with Hayakawa. He was an uh, Kotani was also an actor for so called Japanese cinema made in Hollywood. Um, uh, so he appeared in such films as The Typhoon uh, and some other Sesu Hayakawa star vehicles um, as, um, um, well, uh, not as a reading characters, but uh, as a supporting roles. Um, but anyhow, so he changed his career from an actor to a cinematographer. Uh, and he worked with uh, Sesu Bidemel, Albin Wyckoff, uh, and... He learned lots of, you know, Hollywood style cinematography and lighting uh, in the 19-teens. Um, uh, Hollywood was uh, developing um, a very interesting, expressive way of lighting, uh, which is called uh, Rembrandt Kaleskuro, or uh, the last key of lighting, um, which uses um, low-key lighting as a very expressive mode, um, some Je- German expressionist type of lighting. Um, so he brought back um, that, kind of, you know, uh, special lighting to Japan when he was invited to um, a uh, new Japanese studio um, in 1920. So, uh, and after that, uh, there were lots of conflicts uh, in Japan. Um, His films were uh, very well received by the technicians, like cinematographers in Japan, but not necessarily by the general audiences in Japan. Um, So he became a kind of a, uh, you know, a cross, uh, border crossing or cross-cultural um, person like Hayakawa. And the other uh, person I became really interested in, uh, really interested um, before I started this project was uh, Hari Mimura. Uh, he's another um, Japanese cinematographer who started his career in the United States, in Hollywood. Um, Mimura was uh, uh, well, he worked with Greg Toland. Uh, he's famous for his work with Orson Welles, Citizen Kane, uh, and William Wyler films. Um, and Mimura also came back to Japan um, in the 1930s um, when a new studio, Toho, was looking for um, experienced technicians uh, from Hollywood and from not only from Hollywood but uh, from elsewhere uh, to establish its own uh, film making film production status in Japan uh, and uh, like Kotani Mimura had a very very interesting but difficult time in Japan so those two people I think uh, draw drew me into um, this new project, The Aesthetics of Shadow. So I was and I am interested in those people and phenomena that cross borders. Great. Thank you so much. So let's actually get right into the book. And you've, you've really beautifully introduced some of the main characters in the book. And each one of the chapters focuses on 
one or two characters, maybe more than that, and or one or two case studies of particular films that serve to illustrate some larger point or larger transformation um, that you're trying to get at in the chapter. So we'll we'll actually talk about some of these guys in a little bit mm-hmm. in a little while. But to start off before that, to get right at the beginning of the book, you describe cinema at the beginning of the book as a medium of light and shadow. And in fact, just as much as we can read this book as a history of film or a history of modernity and Japan, it's also really beautifully and fascinatingly for me, a history of light and a history of shadow. And that's one of the ways in which I think the book speaks very, very broadly beyond potentially the field of East Asian studies or cinema studies. So you situate us at the very beginning by introducing a work that some listeners may be familiar with. Um, I was really pleased to see this. I had read this as well, and I'm trying to understand shadows many years ago in the context of Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, Tanizaki's In Praise of Shadows. Now, the book presents a question at the very beginning. Why did Tanizaki and also Japanese cinematographers, some of which you've actually started talking about already, why did they start emphasizing shadows in the 1930s, which was the same time that Japan was in the midst of a flourishing culture of electric light? So how do we get this kind of um, seemingly conflicting set of emergences? And what the book is going to show, ultimately, is that among other things, it, there's not a conflict there at all. It's actually, they come from um, similar phenomena, and it's a really fascinating story. So as we get into the beginning of the story in the first chapter, you introduce here the formation of a film industry from 1920 through um, a little bit later on from the perspective of light. Now, you show here Japan is transformed into an industrial power thanks to World War I, and at this time, Tokyo becomes an industrial center. It becomes an urban center, and it becomes a center of a kind of modern urbane life during the Reconstruction after the Great Kanto Earthquake of 1923. So that's the general context um, that we're in for listeners um, who haven't had a chance to read the book. Okay, so given that, you introduce in this first chapter a film company, Shochiku. And this is a film company that originally operated kabuki theaters, but that enters the film business in 1920. So let's start talking about this company, because they actually form a really important part of many of the chapters to come. So can you introduce for listeners, um, what is this company and what do we need to know about the company early on in this mm-hmm. in order to understand the, the larger argument you'll go on to make in this chapter. Right. Uh, the only thing that you really need to know about this company, Shochiku, is that uh, it was a company, it was a very successful company of Kabuki Theater. Mm-hmm. Um, kabuki is uh, one of the uh, so-called uh, traditional uh, theatrical art form in Japan, um, but it's uh, but it uh, didn't really have a very long history compared to uh, the other art forms like no and kyogen. Uh, kabuki started in the Edo period, um, but as a, um, a popular culture, mass culture of those periods, um, and Shochiku was the successful company of uh, Kabuki. And because of that success, um, it was the company was looking for some other uh, venue um, to, uh, well, basically, you know, to be more successful, to make more profits. And cinema um, 
was becoming uh, one very successful cultural form, cultural medium in the 19-teens. And uh, um, especially Hollywood films, Hollywood film industry uh, became a really dominant force of the business, um, especially during and after World War I I destroyed the European uh, industry, European companies. and the Hollywood companies were making, uh, like I said, uh, so-called Japanese films. Um, so the Japanese subject uh, films in Hollywood, uh, creating lots of you know, stereotypical uh, images of Japan, uh, including uh, modern butterfly type of narratives and so on and so forth. So uh, Shochiku, uh, the executive uh, you know, uh, uh, people at the Shochiku company, they were frustrated by uh, those uh, Hollywood versions of Japanese films. They thought, you know, their profits were uh, stolen. Um, so they wanted to create a Japanese version, the real Japanese cinema, and uh, uh, to to um, go into the film business, um, uh, receive their profits properly, and so on and so forth. So in that sense, um, they needed um, technicians who are who had experiences in Hollywood, and that was the time when uh, people like Henry Kotani uh, was thought of and brought back Anne uh, to Japan. Exactly. So enter Henry Kotani, and he winds up being one of the central characters in this part of the story and in this chapter. Now, as you've um, you've already talked a little bit about him, he started his career in Hollywood around 1915, and he returns to Japan and joins the Shochiku Company and joins their Kamata studio in particular in 1920. But he's fired a few years later. And one of the things that happens here is that there's a conflict between um, Henry Kotani and Shochiku, and that conflict is over, among other things, lighting, approach to lighting, attitude toward lighting. And so here's where the story really starts to be a history of light um, as much as it is a history of many other things. And this is fascinating. So in order for us to understand what this conflict was, can you talk a little bit about this? Now, you you mentioned here that the key terms for us to understand this conflict are visibility and expressivity. So where along these lines is Kotani? What is his approach to lighting? Um, And then we can start to understand how this might have conflicted with the approach to lighting um, held by what you call um, the Kamata tone. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I said uh, the most important thing that you need to know about Shochiku was that uh, it is a kabuki company. I, uh, and uh, in kabuki, um, lighting is not necessarily an uh, important expressive method um, to be explored um, in kabuki theaters. On stage, everything is basically in flat and bright light. The important thing is um, visibility rather than expressivity by lighting. Um, The stars' faces, uh, the setting, costumes, uh, very colorful and beautiful costumes, they have to be visible uh, to the audiences. Um, So that was the basic presupposition of the Shochiku company, about uh, their products. However, 
when they entered the film business around 1920, um, they thought they needed, they would need to catch up with Hollywood in terms of uh, stylistic um, elements, uh, technological and technical um, issues. So the original idea was to imitate Hollywood films, including cinematography and lighting. So the people like Henry Kotani and Edward Tanaka from the uh, Douglas Fairbanks company were brought in. Um, so uh, they brought, I mean, people like Kotani um, were trained in Hollywood. Uh, if, we, if I uh, talk about uh, lighting per se, Kotani uh, like I said, was uh, trained to make films in a very expressive mode of lighting, Lasky lighting, um, and such films as The Cheat, um, in which Hayakawa, Sisu Hayakawa, played a very villainous role, and lighting played a very uh, expressive um, uh, way of uh, representing this character. But anyhow, um, so Kotani tried to... Uh, you know, uh, try to do what they, uh, what he used to do in Hollywood. Um, but probably um, the general audiences in Japan and the executives at Shochiku Company, they were not very used to such kind of expressive writings. So um, in order to become successful in the domestic market first, uh, they thought it might be too early to incorporate um, Kotani's cinematography and lighting. Um, so that was the major reason why you know, Kotani was uh, fired after ju- just after a few years um, at Shochiku. Um, so in that sense, Shochiku's original idea about uh, expre- expo- exporting um, Japanese films to the world and competing with Hollywood um, ended um, unsuccessfully. But uh, Shochiku made its choice um, and became successful in the domestic market. Now, part of the story um, and, and one moment in this chapter that's really interesting for listeners and readers who are interested in a history of cosmetics and beauty. <laughs> um, it's, it's right. You mentioned here how as part yes. of this um, particular attitude toward lighting and part of the technology of film and the technology of lighting is actually cosmetics. And so mm-hmm. there's this really interesting account here about actresses, the centrality of actresses to what's going on in these films, and in, in particular the way that the transformation in cosmetics, Max Factor cosmetics being used here, is kind of paralleling this, uh, pa- is parallel with um, this larger kind of way of thinking about light and transforming the thinking about light in cinema. So that's a really, I think, interesting moment that for me was was fun. Right. Uh- yeah, uh, Shochiku film, um, the things that uh, distinguish Shochiku films from uh, Shochiku Kabuki uh, is, the ex- is the existence of uh, female characters. Uh, on the, uh, on the, the stage of Kabuki, there's no female uh, characters. No, uh, there are female characters, but all of them were played by male actors. So what we see on the stage of Kabuki is all male actors. Uh, but in Shochiku films, we see the actual female actors. 
and uh, in order to um, show those female actors and uh, male stars beautifully, uh, Shochiku didn't abandon um, Hollywood ways of lighting and cinematography. So in that sense, Shochiku incorporated Hollywood style of lighting, uh, three-point lighting, um, and uh, the combination of three-point lighting and kabuki-style bright lighting uh, for uh, the first Japanese star, uh, Sumiko Kurishima, and also the, uh, probably, arguably the most popular star in the Japanese film history, uh, Chojiro Hayashi. Slash, uh, Kazuo Hasegawa. And this is really beautifully bringing us into the next chapter. <laughs> um, um, and, and, I, and I'll also just mark um, the conversation briefly just by mentioning this is one of many, many instances in which the book um, really wonderfully brings out the fact that this isn't ultimately, even though it might initially seem this way um, to people, you know, thinking about this topic, it's not ultimately about Japanese versus Hollywood, right? It's not about Japan being this essentialized thing and then the West or Hollywood being this other essentialized thing and it's one or the other. You really see here the emergence of a very um, hybrid kind of transnational approach to lighting and cinema um, that really complicates the tendency to think in these dyads in, I think, a very helpful way. So the second chapter, um, you mentioned Hayashi, um, and that brings us into Flashes of the Sword and the Star. Chapter two focuses on Jidaigeki, which is a period drama. This is a genre, as you show here, that was popularized in the last half of the 1920s, and it became very, very popular thanks to spectacular sword fighting scenes. And so this is a really, really interesting moment in the story. So for listeners who may not be familiar with this, um, this genre, this concept, can you talk a little bit about um, period drama? What is it in this context? And um, what, in what way are sword fights and these scenes um, so important to what's going on here so that we can then go on to understand light in this context? Okay. Uh, period drama, Jidaigeki, uh, uh, it's set in pre-modern Japan or early modern Japan to be more exact uh, before 1868 well mostly most of the Jidaigeki and Jidaigeki films were set in the Edo period which um, started in um, year 1600 and ended 1868 uh, which was considered to be uh, a very complicated uh, period uh, that combines pre-modernity and modernity in Japan. Um, but anyhow, uh, it was a, it was it is considered to be a very peaceful period uh, for those 250 years. Um, and uh, samurai sword fighting warriors they didn't have to go to uh, any wars. Um, so and they became a kind of a bureaucrats in Japan. Um, and because of that, oh, they used to be uh, some, uh, you know, sort of fighting warriors before the Edo period. So uh, in that sense, uh, they went into a kind of an identity crisis. So the myth of the sword uh, became um, the core or uh, started to exist um, in the you know, period among uh, the samurai uh, warriors. And um, the period drama Jitaigeki um, enhanced this myth, uh, this myth of the sword and lighting played a very, very significant role in it. Um, 
Now you're showing here in this chapter one of the ways in which lighting plays a significant role is that these films, these dramas, incorporate lighting and technology in these scenes in a really interesting way that features the flash of the sword. So literally this sort of bright flash of the sword as a crucial element in the plot and the drama and in the style. Okay, so this is this is the way in which this is really deeply or one of the ways in which it's very deeply integrated into a larger story about light. It's the flash and the light of the sword. Now the success of this genre of film winds up challenging that of the company that we just talked about when we were talking about the previous chapter. This is the Shochiku company. So can you talk a little bit about that? How did, how did um, as, or specifically as this um, genre is becoming more successful, it is challenging what had been the success of this company. So how does the other company, Shochiku, strike back? At, um, so how does it try to maintain competition with this new new kid on the block? Right. Um, so Shochiku, like I said, was the kabuki company. And basically speaking, their films followed the tradition of the kabuki theater in terms of lighting, flat and bright. And that was uh, basically the, uh, the trend of Japanese filmmaking, um, partly because of the um, technological limitations, material limitations, um, but uh, also uh, most uh, most popular films in Japan um, in the first two decades were reproduction of kabuki theaters and uh, Shouzo Makino, Makino Shouzo, the father of Japanese cinema. Um, he's the slogan of his filmmaking was um, Ichi nuke ni suji, um, quality first, story second. So he wanted to show um, his actors, his story, uh, his settings in a bright and clear manner. Um, so both the tradition, the convention, filmmaking convention in Japan and uh, Shouchiku's strategy, they emphasized brightness. Um, and because of the um, dominant status of Shochiku in um, the theatrical world and eventually in film business, that brightness became the dominant mode of fighting in Japanese filmmaking. However, uh, there were people, some smaller companies, who and that wanted to challenge the dominance of filmmaking in Japan and Jidaigeki or period drama became one such force to challenge the dominance of Shochiku style filmmaking that emphasized brightness. Um, in kabuki theaters, um, sword fighting, sure, there are lots of sword fightings, but they are more like uh, sword fighting dances. On the other hand, I mean, on the contrary, in Jidaigeki or period dramas, they emphasized more realistic, violent, brutal ways of using swords. Um, there were other theatrical um, genre in Japan, which was called Shinkokugeki, uh, that emphasized more brutal and violent ways of uh, using swords. Um, that could have been um, supported by a new urban um, and modern um, culture uh, in Japan that was flourishing in the 1920s. Um, but anyhow, 
the Jidaigeki challenged with a realistic sword fightings, um, I would challenge the Shochiku's dominance with realistic sword fightings. And lighting played a significant role uh, with, uh, express, with expressive styles. So even though Kotani didn't make, Henry Kotani didn't make lots of Jidaigeki films, um, the cinematic cinematographic styles, the lighting styles that he brought back from Hollywood, uh, very expressive, low-key type of lighting, uh, was very useful to create uh, Jidaigeki films and made the swords of the sword fighters shine. Now, one of the things, and and as I um, ask the next question, what you and listeners might hear occasionally is a little bit of a a knock-knock knocking on my end of things. I think the people above me are doing some sort of constructions. So if you, I urge you and listeners to think about it as a, if you hear that, think about it as kind of a backbeat. Yeah, just, that's a sound effect. Yeah, imagine yourself just kind of rapping over that. So just, just kind of like incorporate it in as a sort of a, a musical backbeat as we rap about <laughs> the book. <laughs> okay. Or the sword fighting dances <laughs> right. by the sword Kabuki fighting. actors. Boom, boom, yeah. Boom, yeah. So, so part of this um, chapter, and this is why I mentioned that um, one of the things that you said earlier brought us right into this, part of this chapter looks at one of the stars um, of this uh, cinematic style that you talked about, and this is Hayashi Chojiro. This is the most popular male star in Japan from the late 1920s to the 1940s, and he becomes important here, among many other things, um, for generating, along with the company that's sponsoring his films, generating a new kind of viewing subject, a new modern viewing subject, a new kind of audience, and specifically a film culture that targets a female audience. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Because that seems like a really important moment in the story. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, Hayashi is a very, very interesting guy, uh, interesting um, star persona um, in the history of uh, Japanese cinema and arguably the history of cinema uh, in general. Um, uh, but before going into Hayashi, I think I should say something about uh, Shochiku's attitude toward Jidaigeki as well. Um, um, I think, well, of course, you know, uh, Shochiku was aware of the rising popularity of Jidaigeki or period drama. So they wanted to have their own version of Jidaigeki uh, and they tried to headhunt uh, some Jidaigeki stars from other studios like Nikkatsu, smaller studios, uh, Nikkatsu and Makino. But uh, unfortunately, uh, they didn't work out uh, beautifully, well, partly because, you know, Shochiku was, uh, was sticking to its own lighting strategy of brightness, cheerfulness, and also partly because you know, Shochiku was um, more specialized in making uh, contemporary dramas urban comedies um, at the studio in uh, Kamata, Tokyo. Uh, and most of the Jidaigeki films had been made in, uh, in Kyoto, the other center of filmmaking in Japan. Kyoto used to be a capital of Japan and there are lots of shrines, temples. So location-wise, it's a beautiful place uh, to make uh, sword fighting, the stories of sword fighting warriors. Um, after uh, some failures of making Jidaiki films, um, Shochiku uh, turned to one very young uh, kabuki actor who was specialized in female 
roles, female impersonator, Hayashi uh, Chojiro. Um, they didn't really expect a lot around Hayashi at the very beginning you know, because um, Shouj- uh, Jidaigeki was not really the major product of Shoujiku at that time. However, once uh, Hayashi appeared in a film, um, his image looked brilliant, at least to the executive producer of Shochiku's Shimokamo studio in Kyoto. So he um, tried to do something about Hayashi and his potential popularity among female audiences. Um, so this producer, um, he, he had an experiences in Hollywood a little bit. So he knew about the um, publicity strategies strategy that Hollywood uh, industry adopted at that, around that time. So he followed Hollywood, made lots of posters, souvenirs, um, uh, you know, consumer goods like, you know, uh, soaps, um, candies, um, Japanese, uh, you know, um, fans, um, costumes, kimonos, and so on and so forth with Hayashi's name on. So there was a huge publicity um, campaign around Hayashi's uh, star image, stardom. That was very successful in addition to a special kind of lighting effects around Hayashi's close-ups, Hayashi's face, Hayashi's eyes. Shall I talk a little bit about the special lighting effects on oh, Hayashi? Yeah. Whatever, yeah. whatever you feel inspired, uh-huh. inspired to talk about, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Shochiku didn't really follow Hollywood ways of lighting um, except star lightings uh, in their urban comedies, um, contemporary dramas. However, for Hayashi, they did, well, basically they did everything uh, they could do um, so they incorporated Hollywood style three point lightings, uh, and they also tried to incorporate special effects in kabuki theaters. Uh, in kabuki, um, when a protagonist goes into a very important action, uh, they take a special pose, which is called mie. Um, he, I mean, those characters use uh, their own eyes in a very vivid manner to gaze at their enemies or uh, whatever. So Shochiku combined this Mie style of acting and the Hollywood type, Hollywood style three-point writings for Hayashi, which creates a very interesting um, moments in Hayashi's star because it's a static uh, and longer moments of glamorous lighting over Hayashi's eyes and and his uh, beautiful face, um, which was called uh, the effect of uh, Onobashi and Nagashime styles of acting for Hayashi. Great. Now, um, this chapter also talks a little bit about, and I won't ask you to talk 
too much more about it so that we can get to the hands and then ultimately what happens to Hayashi afterwards, because this is not the last we see of Hayashi in this case. <laughs> um, but there's just to um, mention for listeners who might be interested in this aspect of it, um, just so that they can know that it's there and, and seek this out. And when they pick up the book, um, there is a really interesting discussion of the, the way that this particular mode of lighting and mode of presentation generates a, and targets a very particular kind of audience. So this is really interesting from the perspective of, um, I think, gender studies and women's mm-hmm. studies and studies of the gays, um, mm-hmm. among many other things. So, yes. So, um, sorry, if there's anything um, you'd like to mention. That yes. On. Sure. Yeah, go on. Oh, in addition to that, uh, when Hayashi gazes at um, his enemies or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, he most always, uh, in many cases, he looks at his right side. So it's going to be the left side of the movie theater. Um, why? What, what was the reason? Well, um, there was a very strict censorship um, and there was a very strict regulations about uh, gender uh, and sexual relations uh, in Japan at that point. And uh, in movie theaters, the female audiences, in many cases, they had to sit on the left side of the theaters. So Hayashi's Onobashi and Nagashime uh, strategies, the, the effects has to target it towards those audiences, the female audiences who are sitting on the left side of the theater. So Hayashi always looks at them directly into their eyes um, from the screen. That's awesome. I love that. That's really, really cool. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that with us. Um, So not only, so we're going to leave him temporarily for now so that we can move to the next chapter, but then we'll come back to him because he resurfaces. So the next chapter is a really fascinating close reading of two critically successful films that are known as street films. And they focus um, in each case, or the, the chapter focuses rather in each case, on the use of lighting in these films. So in order to um, to make sure I don't take up two more hours of your time, which I easily could, because both of these films are super, super interesting, what I'll do is just is mention the first one and then ask you to talk about the second one. Um, and if there's anything that you'd like to mention about the first one, you're welcome to. So the first of these is a, is a film called Crossways, and it's also translated um, in some other ways. And this film, in the context of talking about this film, among many other things, um, the book talks about the motif of blindness. It talks about the relationship between uh, the idea of German film and the idea of Japanese film in this context and many other things. And you you talk about um, this from the perspective of dynamic materiality here, which is a concept that I think is very, very interesting. And then you move on to talk about um, the second of these films. This is That Night's Wife. It's a crime melodrama. And it's a crime melodrama in which, among many other things, uh, the book, or about which, among uh, many other things, the book emphasizes the use of hands, the use of the tactile, and the motif of surveillance as it was imbricated in the lighting in this film. So can you talk um, for us a little bit about this film? What's the film about? And in what ways was um, there a kind of distinctive attitude toward lighting in this film? What do we need to know, basically, about what's going on here to understand the larger argument that you're making in this part of the book? 
Okay, this is a very interesting film by uh, Ozu Yasujiro, uh, one of the great masters of Japanese cinema. Um, it is one of the early films by Ozu, which was made in 1930. Uh, and if you are familiar with uh, later Ozu films like Tokyo Story and Late Spring, um, this film looks very, very different. Uh, there are lots of um, camera movements. Um, that we don't really see in Ozu's later films. And Ozu is also known as a filmmaker of brightness and sunshine uh, in films like Tokyo Story, Late Spring. Uh, we don't really remember the scenes uh, with lots of clouds or uh, rain. Um, there's uh, there's only one rainy sequence that I can uh, easily uh, think about. I mean, uh from Uzu's films, which is from uh, Floating Weeds, um, with that, uh, the film that Uzu made at Daiei Studio, not at Shochiku Studio, uh, during the period of color films. Anyhow, this film, That Night's Wife, uh, Sono Yo no Tsuma in Japanese, uh, is based on a short uh, detective drama or no- a novel. Um, uh, which was written in the United States in the 1920s. So uh, the Japanese translated version appeared in Japan right before this film was made. Um, this is a story about, uh, like, uh, this is a family melodrama uh, slash crime drama. Um, a poor um, artist, wannabe artist, um, uh, robs a bank because uh, there is a sick daughter waiting at his small apartment in somewhere in Tokyo. Um, And even though uh, the police officers understand the property of this artist, they have to pursue this criminal. And the very interesting thing, one of the interesting things about uh, this film is its use of hard and strong writing, hard and strong lighting on the whiteness of the gloves of policemen. Um, and the emphasis of the movements of hands on the side of this criminal uh, young artist. The contrast between the whiteness of policemen's, policemen's gloves and the uh, kind of an irritated movement of the, um, the criminal is very, very interesting and important. Um, the whiteness easily uh, leads to uh, the um, sanitary, uh, uh, sanitation of uh, street scenes, um, policing of the streets without touching anything. Um, yeah. And that's actually really interesting um, more broadly as well, because one of the points that this chapter is making, um, and I won't belabor this, but just to mention, um, the chapter I think really wonderfully talks about the ways that this depiction of the gloves and the whiteness and the police and the hands and the sanitation 
is also about surveillance. It's also about technologies of investigation. And if you think about a larger literature in which to understand this that argues for the relationship between ideas of hygiene and sanitation and ideas of modernity, I mean, that also sort of speaks to the argument that you're making in this chapter about um, the ways that this film is really tied up with emerging discourses about not just surveillance, not just light, but also the modernizing nation. Mm -hmm. So it's a really interesting kind of cinematic chapter in the history of modernity, as well as many other things. So I think that's also really cool. I just want to put that out there um, for listeners who will hopefully become readers, um, because I think it's it's, uh, one of many chapters in here. It's well worth spending a lot of time on. But given the fact that we don't have um, a whole lot of time, I definitely want to make sure that we get to the last two chapters. <laughs> I promised that we'd get back to Hayashi, and indeed we will. So as we move from um, chapter three, which looks at these street films, including this Ozu film that you um, just really nicely described for us and talked about, um, we move to chapter four, which is a discourse analysis on cinematic lighting from the late 1930s to 1945. And the way Hayashi comes back in here is when we meet him again in this chapter, he's had an accident. He's been attacked with a razor blade to his face, which has um, disfigured him, which has scarred him. So this beautiful guy who had been looking at us in the cinema with this beautiful face now has a scar running down one side of it. So what happened? So this becomes a way to understand the changing ways that he was filmed in terms of light um, in the context of what he did afterwards. And if, if you hear the police, yeah, perfect, yeah, right, perfect timing. Perfect. Uh, I totally yeah. planned that. I totally <laughs> planned that. <laughs> You'll have to do your next book will be on uh, soundtracks in film, right? Right. <laughs> so we can we can integrate this. But yeah, so Hayashi's face has been scarred, um, and the emphasis though the emphasis in his previous films had been on light for the new one, it's now on shadows, which brings us into kind of the um, really major focus of this chapter, which is the idea of an aesthetics of shadow. So we move here, you move us here from a discussion of visibility and expressivity in a previous chapter to now a situation where invisibility was equal to expressivity. Right. And we understand this in particular by looking at the work of a cinematographer. This is a cinematographer you mentioned a little bit earlier. This is Harry Mimura. And he really encapsulates in a lot of ways this turn toward and the, the nature of an aesthetics of shadow. So could you talk um, for us a little bit, if you'd be so kind, can you talk about Harry Mimura and the way that his work helps us understand the argument that you're making about shadow in this chapter? Right. Um, so the situation is a little bit, uh, well, probably the opposite to um, what happened to Henry Kotani, uh, even though they also, uh, both of them had um, um, experiences in uh, cinematography in Hollywood. So Mimura also uh, worked in Hollywood. Um, he started his career in Hollywood and experienced uh, three-point cinematography uh, and beautiful uh, uh uh, glamorous um, lighting in Hollywood of that period, particularly um, in the early 1930s, um, Hollywood studios were turning to um, exploring the areas of low-key 
soft writings. Uh, one good example is Malene Dietrich, um, star vehicles like a Shanghai Express, Blonde B- Venus, um, directed by Joseph von Stamberg. Um, Japanese cinematographers, uh, they adore the beautiful images, glamorous images in low-key lighting, not bright lighting, low-key lighting uh, in those films um, by Stamberg. And they really wanted to uh, imitate those films, um, the cinematography in uh, their films in Japan. Um, However, there were lots of reasons that prevented them from achieving such beautiful images in Japanese cinema. Uh, one of them was material limitations. Um, Hollywood studios were spending lots of time, money, energy to achieve such beautiful, um, glamorous images on stars like Dietrich. Um, but um, such um, uh, quantitative and quality um, uh, of lighting and technologies were not available to Japanese cinematographers. So uh, even though um, the discourse that um, appreciates low-key lighting was very, very uh, dominant among uh, Japanese cinematographers and critics in the early to mid-1930s, they certainly turned to praise the beauty of darkness and shadows. So on one hand, um, this discourse of the aesthetics of shadow appeared from a frustration um, by, uh, that was felt by the cinema- Japanese cinematographers who appreciated the Hollywood style, glamorous low-key lightings. Um, but on the other hand, um, there were um, social political um, context, um, conditions Japan was in at that point. Um, Japan was going into a war with China and eventually uh, with the United States and the world. Um, So bright and cheerful mood of filmmaking that was taken by Shochiku uh, became gradually criticized by many people it was not suitable, according to them, you know, those films were not suitable for uh, wartime, uh, serious um, uh, environments. So even though Shochiku stayed dominant um, as a filmmaking company, their films received uh, lots of criticisms, especially from um, the uh, uh, cinematographers and critics uh, who appreciated the low-key lightings, and uh, we're trying to appreciate shadows. So here, um, sort of a a transnational um, appreciation of um, the lighting technologies were uh, taken over by the national um, discourse, nationalist discourse, um, so those cinematographers, they didn't presuppose, you know, any national boundaries when they are appreciating a cinematographic or lighting um, technologies and techniques. Um, they started, some of them uh, started to um, talk about um, nationalism, Japanese aesthetic traditions, how um, traditionally and historically Japanese culture appreciated um, shadow, darkness, 
so on and so forth. So um, Hayashi's, um, the, the accident that Hayashi uh, encountered, that was a, a symbolic um, incident for this turn of the discourses. So Hayashi was a star of shochiku films, um, appearing in bright and cheerful shochiku films. Even though he was a Jidaigeki star, his films um, were not necessarily about sword fightings, but about the glamorous uh, image of his face. Um, now his face was um, damaged because of the incident. Um, Hayashi started to appear in darker films that emphasized more of a shadow, not the glamour of his face. Um, so Hayashi's accident didn't start the, uh, the discourse of the aesthetics of shadow, but it became a kind of a transitional, I mean, symbolic events of the transition of uh, the discourses around lighting and cinematography in Japanese cinema. So Shochiku's bright and cheerful mood to the aesthetics of shadow. Now you um, you mentioned one cinematographer. Um, this is the Hari Mimura that we talked right. about, um, right? And so there's one cinematographer in this chapter that you introduce, and you talk a little bit about him, but also use him to make, I think, a larger point, which is really interesting, and it's a, I think a corrective to the way we typically um, tend to think about, and a lot of people tend to write about film studies, mm-hmm. which is people tend to focus on the director. Um, as an auteur, right? The director is the one who shapes a lot of what's going on, at least in the popular understanding and and some of the um, academic understanding of film. And you make a point at the end of this chapter and then use it as the focus of the next, the conclusion, that we need to think about the professional status and the artistic status, not just of directors, but of cinematographers. And so you make a point at the end of this chapter that the prof- about the professional status and relative power of cinematographers in Japan and mention how they're, they're effectively cameramen, right? There's not a whole lot of, um, or you just, you, you raise this as an issue. Mm. Now, the conclusion um, continues this thread by making the case, making a very strong case for thinking about cinematographers as auteurs. And so, for again, for taking our attention away strictly from the great directors and looking at great cinematographers in this context. Now, one of the great cinematographers um, that you mentioned and that comes up in this chapter is Miyagawa Kazuo. Now, he becomes really well-known um, and really famous in this context for a cinematography that contrasts very strongly very strong tones of black and very strong tones of white. And through his work... Um, shadows and black and white, they come to define a certain aesthetic of shadows in Japanese cinema. And this becomes naturalized in a way as a representation of Japanese beauty. So would you like to talk a little bit about that? How, um, what's, what do we need to know about this particular cinematographer? Um, what do we need to understand about cinematographers in general in this context? And what about this new cinematography of shadows? Right. Uh, so the, the aesthetics of shadow in the 1940s during the wartime, uh, so it was necessitated by the Japanese cinematographers uh, to justify um, the lack of, you know, uh, technologies and materials um, in um, Japanese filmmaking of that period. Um, so uh, we can say that, you know, after the war, uh, especially during the period of rapid um, Japanese economic growth, um, 
Well, you know, the aesthetics of shadow may not be necessarily, might not be necessarily any longer. Um, Japan could, you know, easily imitate the beauty of um, Hollywood films, the glamour of Japanese uh, Hollywood films, uh, especially when the Japanese economy uh, came back. But uh, the case was not uh, like that. Um, it didn't happen in that way. And Kazumiyagawa was a very interesting uh, character uh, in term in relation to. Uh, the continuous discourse of the aesthetics of shadow in the post-war Japanese cinema. Um, uh, Miyagawa is famous for uh, cinematography in such films as Rashomon by Kuro- Akira Kuros- Kurosawa Akira uh, and uh, Ugetsu Monogatari by Ken- uh, Mizoguchi Kenji. Uh, and most, uh, many of his work in the 1950s and early uh, uh, received international prizes at Cannes, um, Venice, and so on and so forth. So he, uh, so the films that he photographed uh, were the representatives of Japanese cinema in the post-war period. Um, Japan, um, during the post-war period, um, they, in a sense, you know, they needed to uh, reconf- reconfigure the, state, the, the status in the international relations, especially in terms of cultural relations, um, in order to um, uh, create their own positions in international cultural relations. Um, to imitate Hollywood films, even if you know they could do, was not enough, um, especially for. Um, the producers of, I mean, uh, uh, producers at major studios like Dae and Shochiku, um, they needed something else uh, for product difference, differentiation. And the aesthetics of shadow was one um, element that they could refer to, especially when there was a history uh, discursive history uh, around uh, this uh, aesthetics of shadow uh, that was created in the war, invented in the wartime. Um, so uh, Miyagawa, as a cinematographer at the Dae Studio, one of the major stu- uh, studios in Japan in the 1950s, um, they, uh, he probably uh, consciously um, supported um, this uh, consciousness or awareness um, recreating uh, Japanese cultural identity in the post-war period. So even though he was not necessarily um, uh, supporting or creating the aesthetics of shadow in his films, in uh, like Rashomon and Ugetsu, uh, in his publicity interviews, uh, in his autobiography, he constantly uh, talks about how important shadows and darkness were in the history of Japan and for his work. So there, I think there is some kind of a contradiction between his actual work and what he said in his interviews. Um, so he strategically, um, you know, draw our attention to this appreciation of shadow or darkness in Japanese culture. But uh, to me, in his films, he was experimenting, more of experimenting um, the, uh, the, uh, the contrast between light and shadows. So um, in that sense, he's a very ambivalent 
person, as a cinematographer, and probably that is why I am so drawn to his work. Not necessarily by what he's saying about the appreciation of shadows, but by this contradiction between his work and his words. Well, Daisuke, thank you so much for making the time. This has already been a super fascinating conversation for me. And I wish I could ask you a billion more things. <laughs> um, but I've already taken up quite a lot of your time. So given that, and, and understanding um, and just sort of emphasizing for listeners that it is an extraordinarily rich book, there's a ton in here that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention uh, for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Sure. Um, you started out introducing the book uh, in a very beautiful manner. Um, uh, I want to stress the same thing again. So this uh, book, The Aesthetics of Shadow, Lighting and Japanese Cinema, is not a straightforward uh, national cinema book. Yes, uh, the main focus of this book is Japanese cinema, but I try to um, talk more about the network of uh, filmic production, cinema's production, distribution, and exhibitions. Um, so, the sub, like you know, uh, as you see in the subtitle, it is not lighting in Japanese cinema; it is lighting and Japanese cinema. Uh, by this word. And I wanted to imply several things. Number one, uh, I wanted to uh, stress, I wanted to talk about uh, materiality of cinema. Um, as, you, uh, as you already introduced, you know, cinema is a medium of light. So I wanted to go back to this uh, essential um, element of cinema, lighting and shadow. Uh, and uh, number two, I wanted to um, talk about uh, the relationships between um, what do we see on the screen and what is hidden behind those images, production practices, to be more exact. Uh, cinema is a technology of light. So I wanted to uh, combine the critical readings, uh, sociopolitical readings of cinema and uh, the technological side, um, how these films were made. Um, so I wanted to start a conversation between the critical readings of cinema and more uh, and uh, uh, those things were uh, those uh, that were um, spoken from the production side. So this is a technology history of technology as well. Um, yeah, and number three, if I may add, um, yeah, this is a history of uh, transnational film culture. So, uh, like I said, um, cinema and cinematographers, especially, they don't presuppose any national boundaries. Um, and I, like I said, I am interested in people and phenomenon that cross or challenged the national borders. So I hope this book um, demonstrates um, the history of cinema demonstrates that the history of cinema has been transnational uh, throughout. And if the notion of the national comes in, it is always about, it is always, um, you know, uh, there was always, uh, there was always a conflict or a negotiation between the national and the transnational. So those are 
uh, somewhat the goals of this uh, book. So if you read into you know, these elements in my book, um, that'll be great. <laughs> great. Well, thank you. And Daisuke, congratulations on the book. It's a really beautiful book. But now that it's out, uh, what's next for you? Are there any projects um, that are particularly inspiring or exciting you right now? Yes, uh, right now I am ecstatic because um, the book is creating uh, some film retrospectives. Um, so the Museum of Modern Art in New York is doing a retrospective called The Aesthetics of Shadow. Uh, right now, uh, they are showing um, at least 10, 12 films uh, based on this book, and they are doing uh, the show, uh, part two of the show in April. Also, uh, uh, the Berlin International Film Festival is doing a similar kind of, uh, kind of retrospective based on this book, The Aesthetics of Shadow. So I am introducing some films in Berlin as well. So if any of the listeners happen to be in Berlin in February, I'd love to meet you. <laughs> in Berlin. And what's next? Um, I am working on uh, Japanism. Um, as you can imagine, I have been interested in uh, guys like Hayakusu Hayakawa and uh, Henry Kotani. Um, so now I am expanding my scope uh, from the U.S.-Japan relationships to uh, the global um, I uh, had a chance to do some research at uh, Institut de Lumière in Lyon, France, and um, I had a chance to watch lots of Lumière films, which were made in uh, made from 1895 to the early uh, period of the 20th century. So I am thinking about doing something around the Japanism and the birth of cinema. Well, c- good luck with that, and also congratulations on the museum and um, film festival work. That's really fabulous, um, and I'm sure that's going to be wonderful. And good luck on your next project, and I'll look forward to talking with you about that when that's done. So, thank you very much. Not out of the, you're not out of the woods yet. Um, but thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure, and congratulations again. It's a fabulous book. Thank you again. It was a great pleasure to talk, to talk with you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.